So we have lots and lots and lots of questions, <laughs> some of which you've already answered. One, one of the questions relates to managing hypertension in your diabetics. So the, the classic question is, how low do you go? Yeah. It's, I mean, as you all know, when you treat hypertension, it's an individual treatment. So you have patients who are thinner, patients who have, you know, blood pressures that normally are like 100, 110, and they're totally asymptomatic. So I don't say, uh, so I guess the question would be, if, if someone's blood pressure is already on the low side, and I'm going to put them on a renin-angiotensin-aldosterone inhibitor, right, to treat proteinuria, at what level am I comfortable with? And typically, I tell patients to take the medicine at night. So when these patients take your ACE inhibitors or ARBs at nighttime, if you start to develop some dizziness, then I tell them maybe take it every couple days, so maybe not Monday, Wednesday, Friday schedule or TTS schedule, and um, we go from there. And again, if, if that still leads to symptoms of, of dizziness and their blood pressure is on the low side, um, or if they get tachycardic, then these are patients that I probably, you know, are not going to get, the, the risk of putting them on a medicine really outweighs the benefits. So it's really an individual decision. I think um, just taking it at nighttime and spacing it out as needed uh, are probably the way to go when you start someone on these medicines. But definitely the benefit for proteinuria cannot be understated. So these are, for, for decades, you know, these drugs have been shown to lower proteinuria, to improve, uh, slow the progression of kidney disease. So we don't want to deny somebody uh, an ACE or ARB uh, unless they have these complications. Do you ever use it on um, your diabetics who have no renal disease and no hypertension? Yeah, so I don't see diabetics without kidney disease in my practice. Um, you know, that's a good question. I, I remember looking this up, and maybe someone, you may, or someone in the audience may know, so what the ADA guidelines are in patients with diabetes who have no albuminuria whatsoever. Um, I don't know. I think if, if you have hypertension and you're diabetic, my guess is the first-line treatment, you know, if you're trying to decide what antihypertensive to put them on, probably an ACE or ARB is going to be number one. But again, these aren't patients that I typically are going to see in my clinic. Have you ever used an ACE and an ARB together? Are there any indications? Uh, yeah, that's, that's a good question. The on-target trial, that was a trial that looked at ACE and ARB, and they found that there was a high risk of hyperkalemia, high risk of uh, lowering of the GFR because you're just, you know, blocking the angiotensin too, too much. And so the answer is the guidelines don't support using both an ACE and an ARB in the same patient. Now, that being said, um, probably not something that maybe a primary doctor would do, but as a nephrologist, I've had patients who have, you know, five, six grams of protein in the urine, very severe diabetic kidney disease, you know, they're on maximum dose of, of lisinopril, um, they're otherwise doing well, their blood pressure can tolerate an ARB. In those patients, I have put them on an ARB before, and I just follow the labs in a couple weeks to make sure that the potassium is okay, the GFR hasn't plummeted, um, and we watch the protein in the urine. If the proteinuria improves and the patient does well with, the, with close follow-up and labs, um, I can do it, but it's not something that uh, is totally off-label, and it's not something that I would recommend for everyone to do. Um, but yeah, definitely, if you are to use both, be very careful about hyperkalemia and reduction in GFR. When you start an ACE and an ARB and you see a sudden jump in the creatinine, uh, what do you do? And if you stop it, how long do you expect the um, creatinine to improve? Yeah, that, that's a good question. So uh, it's a known effect of the drug. When you put someone on an ACE or ARB, as I showed in that schematic, what you're doing is you're blocking the angiotensin II, which is going to lower the pressure in the glomerulus. So if you lower the pressure in the glomerulus, the GFR will start to go down, the creatine will start to go up. 
then the old school thinking was that uh, allow a 30% increase. If you have a 30% increase, then you're okay. And if it's more than that, then you have a real perfusion issue that that person may not benefit from it. I think in the last five years, there's been a couple studies published. I know one in the Lancet that looked to see in patients who had that drop in 30%, or they had more than a 30% increase, what would happen to them. And I think what they found was that if you do have a more than 30% increase, you actually do have worsening prognosis. So if you find someone who's got more than 30% increase, then those are the patients you really need to stop the drug. Uh, in my clinical practice, if they're referred to me, you may want to look at renal artery stenosis, because remember, it's not just young patients with uh, dysplasia. Elderly patients who have atherosclerotic disease, they can have poor perfusion to the kidneys. And so they could have a lot of plaque buildup on there. And so screening for renal artery stenosis would be something to think about if they have you know, a huge rise in creatinine after starting an ACE or ARB. But uh, for the most part, yeah, if it's below that 30%, I think the guidelines would support um, that the benefits do outweigh the risk. Switching gears a little and bit. And the other part of the question was, how long do you wait if you yeah. stop it for to, to, to discontinue? Typically, half-life at three to five days. So even when you start the drug, you tell them it's going to take maybe a few days before it gets in your system. So after you stop it, within three to five days, it should be out of your system. Switching gears to contrast, what do you do for the diabetic with CKD level two or three, and uh, they have to go for a contrast procedure? Do you do anything in preparation? And then if they get the bump in creatinine, what do you use afterward? Comment on mucomist. Yeah, yeah, so that's, uh, contrast nephropathy is, um, it's interesting. I think in the general population, if you look at all healthy individuals, you know, most of you in the audience, if you were to get a contrast procedure, the risk of contrast-associated nephropathy is 5% or lower. So it's not, nothing to sneeze at, even for someone who's totally healthy. It increases to 10% if your GFR is above 30. It increases to 20% if your GFR is between 15 and 30. And it increases to 30% if your GFR is below 15. So it is something to think about. Now, what do we do to prevent it? The PRESERVE trial was a huge trial that was published about, I don't know, four, three, four years ago. They looked at mucomist versus placebo, and they found there's no difference between the two. So definitely do not use mucomist. It's not going to hurt. It's a, it's a fairly safe medicine to use. It, it tastes terrible, but it's fairly safe. It's like an antioxidant, more or less. Um, but it doesn't do anything to prevent uh, the, the contrast-associated injury. What is shown to improve is just hydration. So uh, typically in the hospital setting, again, we are going to give the patient um, a certain amount of isotonic fluid, which can include uh, normal saline, can include lactate ringers, can include uh, fluid with bicarbonate, just something that's isotonic, the same tonicity as your body. And if you can volume expand them about you know, a liter, so depending on what their weight is, I think it's about one cc per kg per hour, so for 70 kilo person, it's about 70 cc's an hour. If you can hydrate them beforehand and hydrate afterwards, you can prevent uh, the contrast from accumulating in the kidney. You just uh, encourage the, the uh, excretion of it. In the outpatient setting, um, what a lot of my colleagues have done, or at least what I recommend in, in patients who have you know, a GFR above 30, for example, and they're getting an outpatient contrast study, you know, I just recommend to hi hydrate yourself at least one liter before and at least a liter afterwards. Um, I don't know if that's supported by the guideline, but certainly um, and I doubt there's ever going to be a trial to say that, but a liter in before and a liter after is, is a reasonable approach for someone with CKD stage uh, 3 with a GFR above 30. And certainly if you can give it intravenously, that's always better because you know it's going to be absorbed right away and uh, promote the excretion of the, the contrast material. Now gadolinium is something to think about. Um, gadolinium can, uh, is different. So for MRIs that need contrast, they use gadolinium. That's another kind of 
contrast agent, it's nothing like iodinated contrast, gadolinium is excreted by the kidney. Um, and so if someone has a GFR below 30, we typically avoid any kind of gadolinium because it's gonna stay in the body for a long, long time, and it can really fibrose in the skin and cause something called nephrogenic systemic fibrosis, which is not very common now because there's so much awareness about, from radiologists about checking a creatinine before they give contrast, but uh, about 15 years ago, this was a huge thing, and it was in the news where patients would get a lot of fibrosis in the skin. I mean, very terrible disease because that gadolinium just hung out in the tissues for a long time. So remember, gadolinium, if your GFR is below 30, you want to avoid. You can use contrast, but hydrate them. And if your GFR is above 30, you're fine with gadolinium. But for contrast, uh, you know, I would recommend doing some hydration. At what level of potassium in the outpatient setting do you get excited? And talk about the new potassium binder. Yeah, yeah, so I, I get excited about any level, I guess, truth be said. But the uh, potassium, it, it depends. I think I have a higher threshold, I guess, than probably most people because I'm a nephrologist. Um, usually, so 5.5, 5 5.8, 5 those are kind of numbers where most nephrologists would feel a little bit concerned. So if you have a potassium above 5.5 or even 5.8, these are patients that you want to really think about. But it's not really the absolute number. You want to look at the whole patient. So why is the potassium high? Is it high because their kidneys aren't working? In which case, that's a pretty serious thing. Is it high because they're on an ACE inhibitor? Um, is it high because they're fasting and they're just vasoconstricted? You know, they, they have nothing in the body, and so they can't dump out potassium. Is their sugar high, and that's why their potassium is high, and giving them insulin will move that potassium inside the cell? So it's not really so much an absolute number. You really have to look at the entire patient and figure out why is it high before you can make a decision. Um, but that being said, if you have someone who has hyperkalemia, let's just say 5.5 or higher, and you've checked it a couple times, you ruled out all the other causes, and they're on an ACE inhibitor, which is a classic case, a diabetic kidney disease, the potassium 5.5, they want the benefit of the ACE or the ARB, you know, how do you keep that potassium lower? Well, that's where really uh, these new potassium binders have come into market. And so uh, we used to use um, uh, K-axalate, which I forgot the trade name for it, I think um, sodium polystyrene, was around for the longest time and, uh, you know, almost 50 years before we have a new potassium binder. So there's two new ones on the market. Uh, there's patyramir and then sodium uh, zirconium silicate. So Veltasa and patyramir are the trade names. And these are two drugs that uh, really came out in the last couple years. Uh, they have intense uh, combination with, uh, competition within one another because uh, they're both trying to get the same population, the patient with CKD, the patient who needs an ACE or ARB that has hyperkalemia, so they market pretty aggressively to nephrologists, to cardiologists, and probably to you as well. Um, they're a lot safer, so the, the risk, sodium polystyrene, the K-axalate, had two big risks. One is that it exchanged sodium for potassium, and so obviously you don't want the patient with CKD to have more sodium in the body, and so they would have more edema. And the second big thing was it was linked to epitose necrosis in the gut. Basically, it expanded within the gut as it pulled in all that potassium, and so you could have reports of uh, gut necrosis. And so those were the two big negatives with the, uh, the K-axalate or the sodium polystyrene. The new drugs don't have much of that effect. They don't expand, and so the gut necrosis is almost gone uh, as a risk. Not that the risk was high to begin with, but the risk is much lower with the newer agents. I think uh, Localma and, and uh, Veltasa are the trade names for them. Um, they can cause edema. I think at least one of them um, is associated with a little bit more edema than the other one. Um, but for the most part, they're safe to take. Uh, they, they're basically, they come in packets that you mix with water. You can take it once a day. Uh, they come in, you know, different size packets, either 8.4, 4, 
for one of them up to 28, one is 5 milligrams versus 10 milligrams, but um, they're fairly safe. I think the big thing is that they're a little bit costly, obviously like with any new medication that just hits the market, so you may run into cost uh, issues, but certainly they have a niche role, and um, I think a lot of uh, nephrologists, myself included, have embraced them for certain populations that tend to have hyperkalemia that would benefit from this drug. Um, one of the discussions is about diet. What special diets do you put your renal insufficiency patients on, and what do you think of the keto diet and high-protein diets? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, the renal diet, it's a terrible diet. It's really hard to go on. I think as a fellow, we had an experiment where we had to go on a renal diet for, for a week, and it was awful because there's not much you can eat with that diet. But it's, it's really indicated, um, if you look at the guidelines, it's really for someone with GFR less than 15, um, you want to really be limited. So if your GFR is above 15, you don't have to be so strict to limit your phosphorus or potassium. Um, Sodium, you should start limiting when your GFR goes below 45, particularly if you have hypertension. So sodium is probably the first thing to limit, and I think the guidelines would say, you know, as low as you can get it, but two to three grams is, is probably reasonable and feasible uh, for patients. So uh, the first thing I'll start with is sodium restriction, uh, really for all my patients. If their GFR goes below 15, we really want to pull the, uh, the phos low phosphorus diet, which is super hard to follow because phosphorus is in everything. I mean, if you look at any, anything that's preserved, right, it's preserved with either sodium or phosphorus. So this uh, pyrophosphate, all these, you know, long nerve, if you look over at any package that you buy, if it has something like something, something phosphate, you know, those phosphates are absorbed by the body. 70% of them are absorbed, so you really can't get rid of them if you have kidney disease. So you want to limit phosphorus, and then potassium, as I said, is really kind of a late finding, but definitely when your GFR is below 15, you want to start limiting uh, phosphorus. The protein in the diet, the high-protein diet in animal models in the, in the 80s and 90s, high-protein intake was associated with lower GFR. So the MDRD equation actually came, the term MDRD is the modified renal diet, MD, so modified diet and renal disease. So that was what the MDRD stands for. So that study was done in the 90s where they had about 1,500 patients. They put them on a low-protein diet, like 0 0.4, 0 0.5 grams per kilo, which again, the USDA, I think recommends like 0.8 for an average population, a healthy population. So this is a super low protein diet versus a 1.2 grams per kilo diet. And the MDRD equation found that if you lower the protein very low, you do have some, some benefit in, in slowing the progression of kidney disease. And that was corroborated by animal models that were done earlier. But ever since that study got published, there was other studies that came out that put patients on a low protein diet and they found that there wasn't much benefit uh, to it. So, what I tell my patients who have kidney disease, if their GFR is, you know, below 30, you know, I tell them really be careful with the protein intake, don't eat a lot of, you know, red meats, um, really be careful with, with the type of proteins you eat, um, and if you can get to 0.6 to 0.8 grams per kilo, that's what most of our renal dietitians recommend, and that's great. The question is, does a, is someone who's healthy, putting them on a high-protein diet, does that cause kidney disease? And there's really no study that I'm aware of that has linked high-protein diet in a healthy person to kidney disease. That being said, if you have a patient in your clinic, as I said, CKD is asymptomatic. Again, it requires a blood test, a urine test to diagnose. So if you have someone in your, in your clinic who's 30, 40 years old, they're, they're going on this high-protein diet, um, you know, it's not unreasonable to check a lab on them just to see what their GFR is or see if they have evidence of kidney disease, because if they have kidney disease to begin with, you know, this is not the kind of patient that I would recommend putting on a high-protein diet, because there is that risk of, of lowering of the GFR with the high proteins. Uh, in patients who have really advanced kidney disease, 
the protein, remember nitrogen, protein is really nitrogen, so the more protein you eat, the more nitrogen develops, and the more urea nitrogen builds up in the body, which again can make patients not feel so good. So a lot of our patients who have CKD stage four or five, particularly the five, you wanna really be limiting with the protein because it's gonna make them more symptomatic uh, with the uremic type symptoms. In your patients that you have to start an NSAID on, do you ever consider using celecoxib? Or what do you do? Do you follow them how frequently for creatinine? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I tell patients who have kidney disease, if you need to take an NSAID to take for a week or lower, I mean, less amount of time, obviously the less frequent you take it, the less likely you are to get complications. Um, I think the ACP guidelines for, um, for ulcer prevention is to use, if you have someone at risk for stomach ulcer and they need an NSAID because that's the only drug that works for them, is to put them on a celecoxib plus a PPI or plus an H2 blocker. And so uh, the same rationale would probably hold true in the kidneys that if, um, if they were to need a long-term NSAID use, the, the uh, more uh, selective uh, NSAIDs, the, the celecoxib and that class of drug, is a little bit less potent and less likely to cause any of the, the issues that I showed out in the slide with the kidneys, but certainly, again, long-term use, I would really try and avoid it if you can. Um, we, again, like I said, we really recommend Tylenol, acetaminophen, those type of products in patients with any type of kidney disease because the NSAIDs just have a lot of different effects, um, not just in the afferent arterial, but really throughout the nephron and the, the renal medulla and the cortex. Are there differences in African-Americans and kidney disease in outcomes or when you refer for um, uh, dialysis? Yeah, that's, uh, so it's, it's shown, so I'll tell you, that, so African-American constitute about 12% of the U.S. population. They constitute 40% of patients on dialysis. So right off the top, you can see African-American is at high risk of kidney disease. Now the question is, why is that happening, right? And so certainly there's a, really beyond the scope to talk about all the factors. There's a lot of socioeconomic factors. There's a lot of access to care factors. But there are some genetic factors. There is a, a gene that was discovered um, in the last five years called APOL1. It's a gene that, interestingly enough, um, is in primarily in West African heritage. Basically, it confers protection against African sleeping sickness. So that's the, the reason for that gene mutation. But it affects the podocyte. So if you have this particular gene mutation and you develop hypertension or HIV nephropathy, that second hit really puts you at risk of, of developing uh, end-stage kidney disease. And so that's a pretty new development in, in kidney disease or in nephrology. And so to answer your question, um, African-Americans do have a higher risk of kidney disease. There's a lot of reason for it, maybe genetic and maybe socioeconomic or the, the social determinants of health, which um, you know, we really look for in our patient population. Um, but yeah, and access to transplant is another thing. So certainly African-American population, we really want to push transplant because historically they have been less likely to get a kidney transplant. So actually the whole transplant guidelines were revised um, in 2012 that promoted um, time on dialysis. So before, it was almost a first-come, first-serve. When you got on the list, that's where your name was on the list. But after the new guidelines came out, I think in uh, November of 2012, they gave you time on dialysis. So at that point, a lot of minority populations who had been on dialysis for 10 years, 15 years, nobody had ever put them on the transplant list or they hadn't done that whole process, all of a sudden jumped to the top and were getting transplants much more evenly. So. Um, so there is definitely in kidney disease, there is this difference between the, the, the African-American population and non-African-American population. But I guess to answer your question, it's a little bit more complex to, to answer. Um, 
ACE and ARBs are not as effective in African Americans. How do you treat their hypertension? Or do you do it differently? Uh, I don't know how much of that. I guess so the All Hat study found, you know, uh, calcium channel blockers and I think thiazides were a little bit more effective in that patient population. So certainly that's probably where it comes from. Um, to be honest, I don't know what percent of those patients had CKD. Uh, so in my practice, um, you know, I, if you have CKD, I use ACE or ARB. Um, certainly in the back of my mind, if you need a second agent, a calcium channel blocker may be reasonable. And obviously, if you have any kidney disease, a diuretic or salt restriction is, is always going to be on the list. So, um, yeah. Along those lines, how do you treat systolic hypertension in the elderly? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> I don't know if there's a right, I mean, a lot of people even don't even look at the diastolic pressure anymore. I think the systolic is, is kind of the, the big one that you look at, but then you get these elderly patients with the very calcified vessels, or they have diastolic heart failure, and they have this wide range between the systolic and the diastolic, and the question is, you take an average of the two, and your patient with 170 over 70, you know, is the blood pressure 170, or is it really somewhere close to 120 or 130? Um, I don't know the right answer to that. I, I think, um, I would say it's not something that we think of as treating them differently. I mean, certainly our guidelines just say 130 over 80, but they don't really uh, account for the differences in these populations. So in my clinical practice, I do keep that in mind. You know, if I have particularly an elderly patient, they have peripheral vascular disease, they have a systolic that's super high and the diastolic's low, you know, I'm going to think I'm probably not going to lower them to the same target as I would someone who's healthy with a blood pressure of, you know, 150 over 100, right? That's the kind of patient that you really want to lower. But there's really no numbers that I can tell you that would help, um, you know, put that into your practice. We seem to have a lot of bodybuilders in the audience, so uh, <laughs> that's a question in terms of the use of protein supplements, creatine powder, and how do you analyze a creatinine in a young man who's muscular and yeah. doing body work? So creatine is a precursor for creatinine, and so it, it, believe it or not, it can affect the assays. So if someone's on creatine, you know, it can affect the creatinine value um, in a way. Now I don't. You know, I tell all patients, you know, that the creatinine, building your muscle is not just taking the supplement. I mean, you really need to, to work out to build the muscle. So just taking the muscle powder is not going to make a, a difference to the patient, and sometimes they, they stop using it. The protein is another one. The more protein you take in, the harder your kidney has to work to filter it out. So high protein intake has been linked, and particularly in patients with kidney disease, to worsening of kidney disease. Creatinine, or creatine supplement, I don't think is linked to kidney disease, so... Certainly, you could take all the creatinine in the world. I don't think it's going to make the kidney work harder or develop any injury in the kidney, but it can affect the, the assays. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I just tell people be careful with all these, these fads. Um, the classic question might be the last one we um, do, and that is, uh, when should a patient with renal insufficiency be referred from primary care to the nephrologist? Okay, so first thing, we don't say renal insufficiency. We go by CKD staging. Okay, CKD staging. So CK, we want to say three. what stage is the patient need to be referred to a nephrologist. So the, what I would say, if they have CKD stage 3B, so that's a GFR below 45, that's when you start to develop the complications of kidney disease, anemia, the hyperphosphatemia, the metabolic acidosis. And if you feel comfortable managing those complications, that's great. Um, you know, if they see me in clinic, these are the patients I'll see once a year. You know, maybe every six months, there's really not much I'm doing differently once I've got them on a good regimen. 
When they get below 30, you really start to see some more of the complications, you know, particularly how to manage the blood pressure. There's some nuances that maybe a nephrologist would be able to help with. When the GFR goes below 20, uh, particularly 18, that's around the time that transplant centers will start listing patients. So you can't get listed for a transplant if your GFR is 25. Once you go below 18, the UNOS, United Network for Organ Sharing, allows transplant centers to start listing patients. So if you have a patient with a GFR of 18 and they have potential donors, these are patients that definitely should be seeing a nephrologist because they should be referred to a transplant center and ideally they can get a transplant before needing dialysis. When the GFR goes around 10 to 15 is around the time you start thinking about access placement. So if someone is uh, heading towards dialysis, that's around the time you want to have a conversation with them about peritoneal versus hemodialysis, referring them for a fistula or a PD catheter. Um, so that's around probably 10 to 15. In this country, most patients start dialysis around a GFR of eight. That's kind of the, the, the average number. Um, there was a trial called the Deal study that came out of Australia and New Zealand about seven years ago, and they randomized two groups of patients, one with a GFR of eight and then one to a GFR of 12, and they started dialysis at 12 versus started dialysis at eight. And they followed them for about five years, and they really found no difference in outcomes. So this previous thought process of starting patients who did a GFR of 15 or GFR of 12 kind of fell off the wayside. Um, our guidelines don't give a number at which you have to start dialysis, so there's no number. You can have patients in the clinic with a GFR of four or five that say they feel good, they're working, they're doing everything that they can do. You know, I'm not gonna put them on dialysis necessarily, but they do have a high risk of complications, and undoubtedly, every single one of those patients that does start dialysis with a GFR less than six, they tell you they feel a lot better when they start. So the European guidelines have six as an absolute number, so if you have a patient with a GFR of six, you know, even though they may say, I feel great, the European guidelines say you should start them on dialysis, and I typically would follow that in my practice as well. Yeah. So our last question um, may not have an answer, but it'd be important for you to share. Uh, when we have something that we use commonly, like dialysis, and yet we, as you said, show that it doesn't improve longevity, it may improve the quality of life, but in some patients, that quality of life may not be a quality of life that's um, without suffering. Mm -hmm. How do you have that conversation with the patient and the family? How do you handle that very difficult conversation? Because as we know, Americans want everything. Yeah. So. No, that's a really good question. I, I will say that one thing that we do, uh, at least in our practice, and probably all nephrologists should do, is we send patients to a class where they learn about their different options when they get to a GFR below 20, particularly. And these classes, they're often set up by third-party places. They um, can't even be in dialysis units. But these classes, they spend about two to three hours. They go over all the options with the patient. They even take them into the dialysis unit to show them what it's like to see patient on dialysis or in the home setting, what it's like to get peritoneal dialysis at home, what a transplant is. And we all know in our busy practice, I don't have two hours to sit with the patient and talk to them about all these things. And so I think it's imperative that every single person before they go on dialysis, they go to an options class and they learn about what these options are. Um, and I think that's probably the first thing to do. And once you go to the class, they, they come back to my office and they always, they have an idea of what they want. They you know, say, look, being at home and doing my dialysis is important to me. I want to do home-based dialysis. And, uh, similarly, I don't have any social support at home. I enjoy going out to a center and interacting with people, and I want to go to a center and do dialysis if and when I need it. So 
having that conversation about what your options are is, is very important, and nobody should start dialysis because they show up in the hospital with a GFR of four, and they have to start on some kind of dialysis. That's not the way we want to do it at all. Now, the other part of your conversation, what to do in the, the elderly patient that I talked about, you know, age over 75, comorbid conditions, who probably is not going to get any uh, survival benefit from dialysis. This is a really hard conversation. Um, nowadays, in our literature, we have what's called a trial limit, a time-limited trial, or TLT. So we tell patients, um, not uncommonly, that, you know, we can start dialysis, let's start it for a few months, let's see how it goes, and you have this conversation with the patient, with the family, and, you know, the patient likes it because they are feeling like you're doing something for them, they're actually trying this out, but in the back of their mind, you're saying three months, you know, six months, we're going to try this out. If, if it's not causing any benefit or any harm, we can take the catheter out and you can stop dialysis and it's not going to make you die any quicker. It's just going to mean that we're going to treat you with more medications. Um, and then the final point to that is that uh, dialysis is life support. I mean, whether no way you look at it, it's a machine that's keeping you alive. And I think palliative care, you know, someone who has comorbid conditions not going to benefit from it, referring to hospice to palliative care is certainly part of the, the treatment algorithm. And I think if we're not doing that, then we're just doing a disservice to the patient because that is another option that really should be there. I'd like to thank Dr. Raghavan for an outstanding talk and a candid discussion.